The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition. The Spectators look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. On this week's episode, Joe Biden is now President of the United States. But can he unite the country and what will his first few weeks in office look like? Plus, the UK's vaccine rollout is now in full swing. How will its success improve our economic outlook? And could some COVID restrictions be lifted as soon as February? And finally, what makes an authentic historical reenactment? First up, Joe Biden this week became the 46th President of the United States. In this week's cover piece, our economics correspondent Kate Andrews assesses his chances of finding the centre ground and uniting the country. To discuss, she joins me now together with Freddie Gray, The Spectator's US editor who writes in the magazine about Biden marks the return of gaff-prone presidents. Kate, in your cover piece this week, you write about what we can expect from a Biden presidency. But before we get on to that, it was the inauguration yesterday. What, what did you make of it? Well, Joe Biden was echoing the sentiment that he has been putting forward since he won the election in November, and that is that he wants to unify the country. He doubled down in the inauguration. He made clear that he would be a president for all Americans, including the ones who didn't vote for him, repeated his message of unity really over and over again. And I think it it speaks to the fact that you know, at any point of governing, any piece of legislation is just going to come secondary in his term to bringing the country back together. The social fabric of the nation is is very much in tatters. There are millions of people who still don't accept the results of this election, who think that it was fraudulent despite the lack of evidence. And it is going to be a, a real battle to bring those people back. I think it's going to be difficult as well because the president may want to achieve this, but his party's going to pull him to the left. The Republicans are angry on the right. And he may want to find center ground, but he's going to need people willing to meet him there in order to achieve it. And we're not quite sure yet how much appetite there is for bipartisanship. Freddie, did you find his message of unity convincing? Quite convincing. I was a bit disappointed that there weren't more gaffes in the speech because Biden is such a master of quite hilarious gaffes. And you've obviously written about that for this week's issue. And what, what sort of thing were you expecting or hoping for? I would have liked him to say that he's known eight presidents, three of them intimately again. That would have been quite fun. But I thought generally the speech was good. I liked him quoting St. Augustine about love. I thought there was a bit too much cliche. He he always says this line about we need to show the world through the, the power of our example, not the example of our power. And it's just a bit naff, that line. But generally, I thought he did an OK speech and just about enough to, to make people feel a little hopeful. Okay, is it fair to say that the mood felt quite subdued during the inauguration? It was very strange because you had Joe Biden delivering his speech to far more members of the National Guard than you did actual guests. It was always going to be a quieter inauguration because of the pandemic, and Joe Biden was very insistent on social distancing, not 
just in for his inauguration, but throughout the campaign. But the event became a security threat. There were really big worries that there might be an at- another attack, as we saw on the 6th of January when a violent mob stormed the Capitol building. So it was strange. It was always going to be a, a virtual year with this virtual parade going on in America, lots of celebrities tuning in. But, you know, let's remember that he was delivering this to 81 million Americans who voted for his ticket. He got more votes for a presidential candidate than any other candidate in U.S. history. So, and I think you could sense that. You know, I I don't think it was totally subdued. I don't think it was melancholy by any means, but it was certainly different. And Fred, how much do Biden's chances of, of trying to unite America now depend on what Trump does next? Difficult question to answer, I suppose, because we don't really know what Trump will do next. I think, as Kate says in her piece, that what Biden has to do is to try and reach out to the Trump voters, to not treat them as deplorables. And if he's really serious about trying to unite America, I would think quite a good move, I don't think this will happen in a million years, but would be to make a committee or or do an inquiry into the election so that people who have fears about mail-in voting and the corruption of mail-in voting can have their concerns answered. I don't think that's going to happen, but I think speaking to Trump voters would be a really good thing to do because a lot of people are very, very disenchanted with American democracy. And Kate, Biden signed a flurry of executive orders in his first few hours, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and blocking a contested oil pipeline. What what should we make of that and what, and what can we expect to see over the coming weeks? None of it was terribly surprising. He was essentially undoing executive orders that President Trump had signed. Governing by executive order is a really bad way to go because you should just assume that it's going to be undone when the next guy or gal enters the Oval Office. So I think that was very much expected. The bigger questions are about what happens with signature pieces of legislation, whether that be stimulus packages, whatever else Biden wants to get through Congress, because because they have this sliver of a majority in the Senate now with the vice president casting the vote to break any tie, they will be able to jam stuff through. But if they want to do really comprehensive packages, they are going to have to get some of the minority party, some Republicans to vote for it. This is where Biden's history of working across the aisle when he was VP, going in negotiating with the Republicans on Obama's half, I think is going to prove rather successful. But it goes back to that original point. Is there any appetite for it? I also think it's interesting that that Freddie brings up this idea of a commission. For a really long time now, there's been complaints about American elections from the left and the right. On the left, they talk about voter suppression. On the right, they talk about voter fraud. You can see a world where you get a bipartisan committee together to start looking at some of these issues. I think the problem is that there are a lot of people out there right now who aren't really interested in the answers to any of this. They're just very angry. And they won't believe it if it's coming from President Biden because they're politically inclined not to. What you're really going to need in two years' time at the next midterm election is for both the Republican and Democratic Party to agree before any votes are cast how they're going to treat that result, the way they're going to respect it. And I think without that kind of consensus, you could be suffering from the fallout of this for a really long time, just millions of Americans not willing to feed back into our systems and acknowledge the legitimacy of these elections. Fred, one of the other points that Kate makes is that Biden isn't actually going to reverse all of Trump's legislative legacy. And she talks about tax breaks, criminal justice reform and foreign policy towards China. What, what do you think about that? And, and what do you think Trump's legacy will be for Biden? 
Well, I think the executive orders, as, as Kate suggests, they are just sort of signalling rather than actual substance most of the time. And it was quite interesting, the executive orders that he didn't do yesterday. He did not undo Trump's trade restrictions on China, for instance, which he could have done, which suggests there might be a similar direction of travel on China between the Biden administration and the Trump administration. But as Kate says, these are just sort of gestures. I mean, I think, you know, it's not even now the incoming president who deletes an executive order. Trump even deleted his own executive order before he left office yesterday, which was to stop government officials taking lobbying posts within five years of working for the executive branch. He Uh, filled the swamp. He filled the swamp. He didn't drain it. He drained the swamp on January 2017. (laughs) And then he just turned the tap up again. He turned the tap on again. Exactly. As he left the door so that his friends can get rich. (laughs) And Kate, what about the Democrats? Bernie Sanders was at the inauguration yesterday. What is he gonna be sort of involved in in moving things to to the left? He is now the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. This is a pretty big deal. It's something Republicans have feared for a long time, that somebody with his very left-leaning inclinations, a proud socialist, might wield that much power. What it means, I think, in practice is that if Joe Biden decides he does want to start lamming bits of legislation through, especially as it's related to money, that he's going to have somebody who's always excited to spend more, to govern more, to to grow the size of the state. You know, it's an interesting dynamic because actually socialism was heavily rejected in the Democratic primary process. You had all the candidates to the left of Joe Biden, and he won in the end quite comfortably. And this is going to be an interesting dynamic how he's been insistent throughout the election that he represents the Democrats, not the progressive wing of the party. But this is the moment really for the progressives to try to gain some power. To what extent Joe decides to fight them, to push them back, or to embrace them and say, yep, I am that transition candidate, it's your party next, will really be one to watch. I think Bernie Sanders's role might be checked quite a lot by the Biden administration. I think the theme of the administration so far is is kind of a, a woke neoliberalism, if you like. I think you'll get a lot of legislative moves that sort of trumpet their virtue, like I expect the Equalities Act will change to have more legislation about transgendered rights and things like that. So I think there'll be a lot of sort of coming together on identity politics. I suspect the economics will not be as revolutionary as some right-wing people fear. Just finally, you've obviously both spent the last four years reporting on Trump, and I suppose it's fair to say it's been a fairly exuberant period. How are you both feeling about reporting on a Biden presidency? shattered, (laughs) devastated. No, I mean, Trump, we've always said it, is the gift that keeps on giving for journalists. I don't think he's going to vanish. But I think even I, with my boring obsession with Trump, was getting quite bored of uh, (laughs) him. So I think it makes a nice change in a way. But I fear the Biden administration's attempts to be boring, to sort of signal how boring and normal and competent they are, will not be able to mask all of the difficult politics that Biden faces. Kate, how are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. You know, I think you have to hold power to account, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat or a demagogue that just left the Oval Office. And I suppose my concern is that everyone's talking about a return to normal. Well, in normal times, the press... <laughs> normalcy. Use the weird word normalcy. Normalcy, yes. Well, I'm not quite sure what the definition of normalcy is, but let's say it probably should include the media scrutinizing people who have 
an immense amount of power. I appreciate the inauguration as a really happy day. I myself, I was really pleased to see the change in power. However, did now, you like Lady Gaga? I thought I thought she was a, it was a, a power, it was a powerful tune. She did a very good job with the anthem. But I think that now, you know, you need to see a little bit more criticism and a little bit more scrutiny. I think the the press have to get back on board with this idea that the Democrats are not necessarily their friends. They're in charge now and they have to be held to account. Thank you, Kate and Freddie. Next, more than 5 million doses of coronavirus vaccines have now been given in the UK. In this week's politics column, Political editor James Forsyth says the rollout is the government's most important economic policy and that if all goes well, some of the most severe COVID restrictions could be lifted next month. Here's hoping. To explain, he joins me now alongside Roger Bootle, chairman of Capital Economics and economist for The Telegraph. James, in your politics column this week, you say that the government's most important economic policy is now its vaccination programme. Do you get the sense that it seems to be going in the direction of being a success story? I, I think it's too early to say that. I think it's going better in its early phases than the procurement of PPE did last March or the launch of a test and trace system. And I think the UK has three big advantages in this programme. The first is that we have a population that is very willing to take the vaccine. According to polling, over 70% of uh, Brits would definitely take the vaccine if offered one this week. You know, that compares with Germany, where it drops to 41%, France, where it's under uh, only 30%. That's the first one. The second is we have a, a, a fridge storage vaccine approved by the regulator in the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. That makes the logistics of distributing the vaccine much easier. And thirdly, the NHS, whatever you, you may say about it, is a well-suited system to a mass immunisation programme. So those are the three big UK advantages. I, I think the supply is going to be tricky. For example, the Pfizer supplies are falling everywhere because they've decided to reconfigure their factory in Belgium to try and make it uh, so it can hopefully manufacture more doses in the future. But I think the kind of question then becomes, you know, how quickly can you vaccinate the population? And what do you do to uh, try and protect yourself against uh, a vaccine evading mutation of the virus? Roger, one of the points that James also makes is that ministers are nervous about whether the government can pull this programme off. Do you, do you think they can? And, and where might you see them slipping up? Well, it really is too early to be sure. And of course, the government's record, frankly, since the pandemic began, is absolutely appalling. I'm hopeful, but I can't be confident. There are all sorts of worries. Various scientists are talking, for instance, about the possibility of new variants appearing uh, and then uh, having to start again pretty much from scratch. There's the fact that apparently the coverage given by one dose is not actually that good. So between the first and second dose, you could someone could catch the virus. There are all sorts of things that could yet go wrong. But so far... So far, the signs are good. James, one of the points that jumped out from your piece, I thought, was where you say that even though a lot of people think once everything, everyone's being vaccinated, life will go back to normal, that's actually far from the case. And, and, you, and you talk about the possibility of people being forced to quarantine when they arrive here. Can you tell us a bit more about this and, you know, and where it might lead? So I, I think there are some signs to, and reasons to think that the UK might be one of the earlier countries to vaccinate, to succeed in vaccinating its population. I think the government think that they wish to kind of protect that advantage. And that, I think, is leading them down the kind of quite Australian route. 
until other countries have caught up. So you'd be looking at a system where only residents of the UK or people with exemptions would be allowed in. Everyone would have to quarantine, but rather than the current quarantine policy where you can do it in a private residence, this would have to be in a kind of state-sanctioned facility and otherwise, you know, a hotel at Heathrow Airport. And, you know, even hauliers would have to have a negative test, COVID test, before they were allowed uh, to proceed about their business. And I think this is this is the concern about, as Roger was saying, these uh, these vaccine uh, evading mutations of the virus. Now, I think some people in government think that this Australian approach is a bit over the top, that Australia could do this because it's a fairly geographically isolated place, that the UK is an international travel hub. And there's absolutely no doubt that implementing this kind of policy would be disastrous for business travel and tourism. But I think there is a growing sense in Whitehall that the benefits of protecting the domestic economy outweigh that. And I think that is that is the direction of travel of policy is towards a much stricter approach to border control until the kind of global immunisation programme has made more progress to try and keep out any uh, possible variant that could defy the vaccine. Roger, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's broadly speaking correct. Uh, I mean, if you think of it, things from the government's point of view, having been through all of this, uh, I think what was just said then about the importance of the domestic economy is absolutely all important. I mean, you know, you've got a situation here where there's a terrific pent-up demand to spend money, actually, in this country. When, as and when we're given the wherewithal to go ahead, there's going to be a fantastic recovery of demand in this country. It's going to be very, very strong indeed. We just have to make sure that we don't throw that away and we could throw it away of course by allowing in new variants of the virus. James one of the other points you make is that whilst we're waiting for this vaccine induced recovery the government is looking to a spring clean of EU regulation can you tell us a bit more about that side of things? Yeah so I mean I think this is one of these remarkable things if it was not for Covid we would currently be having a, a very intense political debate about which EU regulations to keep and which ones to jettison. I think number 10 is very keen to look at what you might call the stock of EU regulations, the rules that are already on the books, uh, and scrap some of those to demonstrate the advantages of Brexit. You saw a small um, example of that, Lara, with the decision to remove VAT from sanitary products. I think out in the departments, there is a sense that the greater opportunities of Brexit come from not accepting the flow of EU regulations in future. So e.g. that divergence from the EU regulatory standards at the moment will come in terms of future regulation and that that is more productive than going back over the, the existing rules already on the statute book. And Roger, this is something that you've written about. You wrote recently in your Telegraph column that the UK's ability to diverge from EU regulation will be a major source of economic gains. What would you like to see cut in the coming months? Well, a whole series of things, but in particular, I would like to see the European Working Time Directive kicked out uh, out the window. There are a whole series of minor regulations and directives. There's the Clinical Trials Directive. There's the Agency Workers Directive. There's a whole series of things. But in essence, I think they need to begin with a blank sheet of paper and say, what, what do we need here? Do we need this? Now, of course, having said that, the treaty we've reached with, um, with the EU is very flimsy on these things. We're going to be... Um, I think we're going to be taking quite a few risks. If the government is going to be going for some significant divergences between us and the EU, then we could be heading for a bust-up. Now, they may not want that, of course, in which case they, I guess they won't do that. But it's going to be difficult, I think, to go for a root and branch 
reform of this stuff without running into trouble with the EU. And James, just finally, this is an interesting point, really, because at the same time as cutting red tape from the EU, we are also, as you say in your piece, expanding the size of the state here in the UK. How do you think voters will respond to that? I think this is part of a sensitivity in government. You see this, Roger was talking about the working time directive. You've seen the kind of political tensions over the mere idea of the government reviewing that and, and just how the working time directive is administered as opposed to the rules themselves. I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a trickiness about that. I mean, there is also a kind of broader question which is, is the centre-right needs to tackle which is if you the covid fighting covid is often likened to fighting a war if you look back at british history world war 1 and world war 2 led to very big expansions in the size of a state and i think the danger of the center right is not careful that covid could do the same because the government has spent huge amounts of money and uh, the sky hasn't fallen in and I think that is leading people arguing, well, come on, we, we should carry on spending money. Uh, you know, there is money available. I mean, you can see this in the argument over universal credit. You know, it, it, extending this £20 uplift in universal credit, that costs £6 billion. But the view is, uh, among Tory MPs, you know, is, oh, £6 billion is not that much. Come on, we spent £12 billion on PPE, £22 billion on test and trace. And I think that, that, that there is... There is, I think there is, there is a, a real challenge here for the centre-right in saying, hang on a second, that this spending on the pandemic was exceptional and a one-off. And if you are going to bake that in in future, then what you are doing is creating a permanently bigger state. And given the size of a state already, it's hard to see how you can do that without reducing the growth potential of the economy. I agree. This is the key issue facing the Conservative Party. And I'm afraid I think that they're going to, in some sense, duck it. And particularly so, since at the moment it's possible to believe that you can just about have everything, as Boris Johnson puts it, having your cake and eating it. And I suspect there's not going to be that much appetite in the government for some considerable while for keeping spending under control, which is what's required to get the deficit down. And also, there's quite a worrying indication linked to that, that for many Conservative MPs, if they have to make a choice for measures to bring the deficit down, then they'll plump for tax rises rather than reductions in spending. I think that's potentially very dangerous. Thank you, James, and thank you, Roger. And finally, Chris Brown from Dorset was stunned when Facebook confused his group of historical reenactment enthusiasts, the Wimble Militia, for a pro-Trump mob, banning them from the platform and not allowing them back on until the BBC got involved. He writes about the experience in this week's magazine and explains how reenactments can bring history to life. He joins me now alongside Justin Pollard, a historical consultant who has worked on films like Pirates of the Caribbean and The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. Chris, in the notes on section of the magazine this week, you write about historical reenactments and you're a member of the Wimborne Militia. Can you tell us a bit about your group? Yes, well, we were reformed. I, I founded it in 1999. I'd moved to the area from upcountry and uh, I noticed at uh, one of the folk festivals here that the, the event was being led by a man in costume and uh, I said if ever he isn't able to do the job, I'd love to have a go at that. So they got me along and got me to be the deputy town crier and then the next time round there was a, a few people I'd met who were local reenactors in some other groups. And I said, why don't you come along for the parades? 
and they did and we enjoyed it and we all enjoyed each other's company and they said why don't we do this more regularly and so we formed the Wimborne militia as being part of the county militia that would have existed in the 16th, 17th, 18th century. So each town would have raised a small body of home guard, essentially. But they were used largely to defend the coastline from pirates and uh, ne'er-do-wells that would come along. So the Wimborne militia is part of the county militia. We've been running with a uh, very nicely with a, a formal commission from the town council they give us a new commission each year so that we have a commission to protect the town promote the history and understanding of the town and see off anybody that wants to do us down so we've got a small group a reenactment group that has developed and grown and we're now sort of about between 50 and 60 members and we we largely focus around 1685 which is when the Monmouth rebellion happened uh, here in Dorset and is a good period to sort of hang our coats up and so we we go about 20 years either way of that and can do various different sort of scenarios and things but we get involved in local events and we get involved in the very wonderful chalk valley history festival as well which is great fun and fairly close and you encountered a more modern foe recently when you made headlines after you were kicked off facebook can you tell us about what happened yeah, well, as far as we, we run a Facebook group to keep us all involved and in touch, particularly during that first lockdown. And we found it very useful because we were able to have online meetings and keep in touch. And we enjoyed it. And the, uh, the all of a sudden it went and we had no idea what had happened. And on my page and some of the other members' pages, it says you've been shut down because you've breached community standards and we were thinking well spoon whittling is not really breaching any community standards is it and so we tried to get in touch with them when you when this happens to you it says go to the help page you go to the help page and we all went to the help page and it said this situation is irreversible we won't change our minds and I tried loads to get find places where I could talk to somebody there is nobody to talk to so in the end we contacted the local BBC and and they managed to find a way into the B you know once the press start getting involved the uh, the Facebook are prepared to listen to you then so that's how it got resolved the first time and that was before Christmas and then it happened again almost uh, a day after the storming of uh, the the capital in America. So they must have run the same algorithm again and it knocked us off again. We were told after the first time that they had put a flag next to our account saying, you know, these people are mostly harmless, so leave them alone, you know. But it clearly didn't work. (laughs) Golly. And Justin, you're in this discussion from a slightly different angle. You work as a historical consultant on films like Pirates of the Caribbean, The Boy in Striped Pyjamas... And TV shows like Peaky Blinders. Can you tell us a bit about what your job involves and and sort of your experience of of recreating history? It's uh, well, it's a very sort of broad brief, really. So we do everything from actually storylining for things like Vikings, where we wrote the outline story, to turning up on set and advising on the etiquette of how people behave, what people are wearing, the sets. So on something like Pirates of the Caribbean. We had a scene set in 1750 in London and they were going to have 500 extras and they wanted to know who, who are we going to hire as extras? Are any of these extras black? How many are women? 
how many are children, how old is the oldest person. So you can then work to sort of put together a group of people who are, who are authentic for the period. I think the thing I come across most, I don't get, I don't get kicked off Facebook, thank goodness, but the, I do come across, of course, a lot of people arguing about things that we get wrong in television and film. And as, as I know, many reenactors will, will tell you, we don't talk about being accurate. We talk about being authentic. Whenever you make a film, you make decisions. You have to make decisions in terms of money, time. And even if we didn't, we can't, we're not in a position to know everything about the past. We don't know exactly what happened. And we can't ever not be 21st century people. So even when I was, I coached Kate Blanchett in being Elizabeth I. And we played the music Elizabeth knew and we read the books Elizabeth knew and we looked at the clothes and the paintings and the period and the languages. But at the end of the day, and she's the most brilliant actress, you have to accept that you're playing a part. And the Elizabeth we created says as much about the year we made the film as it does about the year the film was set in. Mm. And Chris, how important is accuracy or authenticity to what you're doing? Well, it's it's an interesting thing, and Justin's hit the nail on the head, really, that we are people of this age, so you, it's very difficult to be 100% certain about anything unless you've got, you know, some two or three sources of first-hand evidence. And so the, the point that we work towards is we try and do our own research and we look into various things depending on people's interests, and then we draw together through sort of experiential learning to to see if we can build this thing and work out how it was used. So we try and do it that way. I mean, the arguments that reenactors get into about what's what's authentic or not are mind-blowingly dumb and, and miserable and very sad at times. But, I mean, one of the things that always makes me laugh is that uh, people say, oh, that can't be right, that can't be right. And uh, you say, well, why do you say that? And they can't ever come up with a reason, a logical reason. So it's it's quite, it, Justin's quite right. It, we are of this time. We are representing something. We're trying to do it as authentically as we can. But it's it's impossible to get everything perfect. I mean, safety pins, when were they invented, you know? And Justin, one of the points that Chris makes in his piece is that the English Civil War is a particularly prevalent period when it comes to reenactment. Is that something that you've noticed in your work, that there's a kind of interest in that period whether when it comes to films? For film, it's an interesting one, film, because generally these days the sort of dramas we make are, are very expensive. They cost millions of dollars an hour to make. So you're looking for a worldwide audience. Uh, in particular, you do normally, for the, when we do things like Vikings and Tudors, you have big American studios behind you like MGM. So we have a problem with the English Civil War in that it's the English Civil War. If it was the American Civil War, there were lots of dramas about that. But because it appeals very much to a British audience, it and, and this is a problem for us, we'd leave it out of the sort of drama we make quite a lot. And as such, I think that's probably one of the reasons why it gets left out of curricula and it isn't really dealt with in schools, when obviously it's an incredibly important part of our history, and it should be. And, and you know, and Chris is absolutely right, you know, that if you look at the two largest, I'm sure, reenactment societies in Britain, it will be uh, the English Civil War Society and the Sealed Knot. There, you can put together thousands of people. And, of course, we use a lot of these people as extras in films that we make, because they're well-disciplined, they know what to do, they know how to behave in character and period. But we haven't ever really, I think, done the English Civil War on the scale it deserves to be done at all, no. 
Mm. And Chris, have you ever been in a film? Yeah, I've been in a few films, actually. And yeah, Justin's right. We do get asked to do period pieces quite often because exactly those reasons. I've done a few films as a reenactor and I've done a few films as the local town crier as well. Um, I think one of my interesting films I did do some, well, it must be 30 years ago now, was there was a small film being made about the Monmouth Rebellion. And I spent two days half in a ditch and half out of it, which was just incredible. And they put this um, fake blood on my ear and um, it just attracted, it was full of sugar and it attracted loads of flies, which for them was very realistic, but for me it was very (laughs) annoying. And just finally, you both mentioned the Chalk Valley History Festival. If people are interested in this, is that a a good sort of starting place to to experience this and to learn more about the different groups that are around? I think it's a a wonderful, because it's a combination. There are talks on every day of the festival where you can hear, you know, all the latest historical writers talking about their new books. But all around it, there's this living history uh, exhibition. So you can go and meet, you know, uh, English commandos from the Second World War, Civil War soldiers, town criers. You can go and meet people from any period and what they're really the lovely thing is what they're really doing is they're not just dressing up to look in but they're experimental archaeologists they're getting the technology and getting the outfits and looking at what happened and they're having a go at doing it to see how and if it would have worked and if you take your kids along as I do that is fantastic because while I can go and listen to a talk which may be a bit dry for them they can go and actually see it and you know your visual cortex has a much more immediate impact than you know your verbal processing areas so to go and to go and meet someone from the Monmouth Rebellion if you're a kid at school is absolutely the best way to get into it definitely definitely we call it the um the Glastonbury of history and uh, it's it's a bit like um it is it's it covers all sorts of periods it's absolutely fascinating uh, it's a really good place to bring all sorts of people to it's very well organized and it's all raising money for the local cricket club which is another good cause but it is great it's immersive it's good fun Nobody takes anything far too seriously, but it's a lovely place to learn. And uh, there's a bookshop there as well. So you can go to a talk, you like the talk, you can buy the book, you can get the author to sign it. Thank you, Chris and Justin. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as more. There's Liam Kennedy examining Irish-American identity, Julie Birchall defending influencers, and Owen Matthews profiling Alexei Navalny. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.